This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield. Everywhere we turn, a startling new device promises to transfigure our lives. But at what cost? In this urgent and revelatory excavation of our information age, leading technology thinker Adam Greenfield forces us to reconsider our relationship with the networked objects, services, and spaces that define us. It is time to reevaluate the Silicon Valley consensus determining the future. We already depend on the smartphone to navigate every aspect of our existence. We're told that innovations, from augmented reality interfaces and virtual assistants to autonomous delivery drones and self-driving cars, will make life easier, more convenient, and more productive. 3D printing promises unprecedented control over the form and distribution of matter, while the blockchain stands to revolutionize everything from the recording and exchange of value to the way we organize the mundane realities of the day-to-day. And all the while, fiendishly complex algorithms are operating quietly in the background, reshaping the economy, transforming the fundamental terms of our politics, and even redefining what it means to be human. Having successfully colonized everyday life, these radical technologies are now conditioning the choices available to us in the years to come. How do they work? What challenges do they present to us as individuals and societies? Who benefits from their adoption? In answering these questions, Greenfield's timely guide clarifies the scale and nature of the crisis we now confront and offers ways to reclaim our stake in the future. Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by Adam Greenfield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This started out, quite humbly, as a podcast about class warfare, broadly construed, in the United States. Since then, however, we've done episodes on Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela, Korea, Spain and many on the larger questions posed by a U.S. empire in crisis. Today, we're talking about Italy, where a so-called populist alliance of the Five Star Movement and the right-wing Northern League just took over the government on an anti-migrant and Eurosceptic platform. My guest is David Broder, a historian of French and Italian communism and frequent contributor to Jacobin. Before we get this thing started, I wanted to let you know that we have an excellent weekly newsletter and also a bunch of socialist books, and you can get all of that by supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Not long ago, we met our spring fundraising goal of 1,000 supporters on Patreon. But since then, we've lost a number of supporters because their payment information, i.e. credit cards, debit cards, have expired or because some people only intended to donate for a limited amount of time. So, we're down to closer to 990. With your help, we can get back over 1,000 supporters this week. Please, 
help us re-reach our spring fundraising goal at patreon.com slash the dig. Oh, and I'd like to correct an error. In my recent interview with Matthew Fry Jacobson, I referred to Rocky Balboa as having been from South Philly. Obviously, he's from Kensington. We regret the air and apologize to Philadelphians everywhere. Okay, here's David Broder. David Broder, welcome to The Dig. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's been quite a few hectic weeks and really years or even decades for Italian politics. Um, but in terms of the last few weeks, the, the internet-y, anti-establishment, five-star movement, and the right-wing anti-migrant league have formed a government. And initially, that government seemed in doubt because the person put forward to be economy minister was deemed too anti-euro. And that spooked a lot of different people uh, and entities, the quote-unquote markets, the EU, and also Italian President Sergio Mattarella, who was initially moving to block the government. What happened and what's going on now? The result of the election on 4th of March didn't really uh, give any clear indication who the new government was going to be. Uh, the centre-right and centre-left uh, traditional parties, so Forza Italia, led by Silvio Berlusconi, uh, and then the Democrats, uh, they together only got uh, 34% of the vote, uh, which meant there could be no government of the traditional parties. And so the the, the Lega, uh, the League, which actually uh, campaigned in the election jointly together with Berlusconi, uh, and the Five Star Movement, uh, which stood by itself, uh, you know, they together had enough seats to form a government. Uh, they come from very different places politically, uh, and so it seemed difficult uh, also because uh, the Five Star Movement has always previously refused any kind of coalitions, even at the local level. Um, so we actually had over 12 weeks in which no government was formed. Uh, the two parties then came together with a, a so-called contract of their joint platform for government, and their proposed prime minister, uh, Giuseppe Conte, who uh, was totally unknown before. Uh, those of us who were lazy like, lit- like literally not a name that anyone even very closely following politics would be familiar with. Yeah, I- indeed. So he was just like a law professor with a handful of publications. But I mean, I'll give an example, which is, uh, you know, people like myself looking to write an article about Italy might have wanted to look up the Wikipedia page for uh, Giuseppe Conte, but there actually wasn't one uh, even uh, the day after his name had been put forward as prime minister, uh, because he was literally a figure of no public renown. Uh, and he's very much seen as a, as a puppet of uh, the, uh, the, the, the two parties. Basically, he was chosen because he has no independent decision making. Uh, there was a quite funny incident, actually, when he was, uh, when he was addressing the lower house, uh, giving his speech uh, to seek confidence for his government. Uh, he was caught on camera turning to the five-star leader, Luigi Di Maio, saying, uh, and he said kind of under his breath, uh, oh, can I also mention this? And then <laughs> Di Maio just like shook his head and said no. Uh, so, yeah, he's an extremely weak figure. <laughs> um, and indeed, there was also some discussion of whether it was actually even constitutional because, uh, you know, like the Constitution says the prime minister chooses the policy and chooses the ministers and then speaks with the president. So when the president, who's a, who's a supposedly sort of non-partisan figure, 
uh, Sergio Mattarella. Uh, he's meant to just guarantee the constitution. Uh, so when he first met with Conte, there were a lot of rumors that he was basically not happy to accept him as the prime minister because he wasn't a, a serious enough and political enough uh, figure. Uh, uh, then what happened was they, they, they proposed a list of ministers, uh, one of which was um, chosen by the Lega, the economy minister, Paolo Savana, who um, had previously produced a PowerPoint in, uh, I think, about 2014, saying, well, uh, if Italy were to leave the euro, the way to do it would be to not announce in advance that you're going to do it and then take all sorts of measures sort of over the weekend uh, while the markets are closed. And given that neither the Five Star Movement or the Lega campaigned on a pro-Euro exit platform, and indeed their the contract for government made no mention of leaving the Euro uh, or even making preparations for it, uh, Mattarella was unhappy to have Savana as minister because he had indeed explicitly stated that he had a secret plan to draw Italy out of the Euro. Though there's a bit of an irony there, because if one did want to secretly leave the euro, you probably wouldn't appoint as your economy minister a guy who wrote a paper (laughs) explaining how to do just that, Um, at least not if you're very smart about being secret. Yeah, well, (laughs) indeed. Um, So, so, right, so the problem actually was, uh, even in what Mattarella said when he announced why he wouldn't uh, appoint Savona, he said part of the problem was that even naming Savannah would have uh, produced such a, a shock on the markets. Uh, there's a thing called the spread, which is the difference between uh, German and Italian uh, 10-year bond yields. So effectively, when it goes up, that means that the Italian uh, yield is higher because investors are less confident in Italy's uh, future. So, so which, in in, day- which in layman's terms means that Italy would have to pay a lot more to borrow. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so this, this and, and in kind of like Italian kind of media political discourse, this is always taken as the uh, indicator of how well the economy in general is doing. And did they, it's quite strange in the sense because they actually say it in English, uh, loss spread, uh, which uh, <laughs> given that we never say it in English is uh, rather uh, bewildering uh, to the uninitiated. Um, so yeah, so basically then uh, he said he wouldn't accept Savannah. The Lega said uh, it wasn't happy to put forward another name. Uh, and then uh, there was some talk uh, of fresh elections, which in fact did cause the spread to surge even higher because basically the markets were more afraid of instability than a five-star Lega government. Um, I will say that I don't actually think that either party does want Italy to leave the euro, uh, particularly, um, I mean, it's, um, although they both have campaigned for a referendum before, there are large parts of the Lagos, a sort of wealthier northern base, who'd be very unhappy with actually quitting uh, because effectively leaving the euro would amount to defaulting, so it would wipe out uh, Italians' uh, savings. Um, so I think actually what they want and what the Savona affair actually was, was really just a kind of like political jockeying, sort of being seen to stand up against Europe uh, and maybe to extract some kind of concessions over things like debt cancellation or uh, borrowing, uh, you know, going beyond the deficit limits imposed by Europe. Um, and, and that's what the Lega has been very successful at doing. And indeed, in those days when the, the government was in doubt, the Lega was absolutely surging ahead in the polls. 
Um, but yeah, so ultimately what they did was Savannah was moved aside, uh, although rather unusually became the Minister for EU Affairs, uh, and uh, which isn't a particularly important position, <coughs> and uh, another uh, more neutral economy minister was chosen. Uh, so that's the, the government we have now, uh, Five Star and the Lego. You write that the Fed Five Star has basically become an organizational vehicle for the Lega. So before we get any further, what is the Lega, or as it was called until quite recently, the Lega Norte, Norte or Northern League? And North. Who, yeah. and, and who is Matteo Salvini? The Lega Nord was founded in uh, 1991, uh, basically as a merger of uh, several regional autonomy movements, all of them based in uh, north in northern Italy. Um, and at the outset, though, it wasn't exactly a, a, a hard or far right party. Um, it, it kind of used a lot of rhetoric against the kind of lazy southerners combined with uh, the, the sort of free spending, corrupt uh, state focused in Rome, which, of course, is in sort of central Italy. Um, so it demanded uh, sort of cleaning up of the public accounts. Uh, in some regions, it was more kind of workerist and based on the old sort of ex-industrial areas, the old sort of former communist working class, whereas in others, it was more explicitly Thatcherite. And indeed, to that end, even had kind of liberal and pro-European elements. So the idea that the, the north of Italy could uh, maybe even become independent of Italy, but be part of the then nascent uh, European Union. And create, uh, uh, create Padania. Is that yeah. right? <laughs> so Padania so, uh, is a country that's never actually existed, and it means like the area around the, the Po Valley, the River Po. Uh, so, uh, Matt, you know, there's a famous photo actually with a uh, Matteo Salvini himself wearing a t shirt saying, Padania is not Italy. Uh, of course, the northern regions of Italy are, are much uh, wealthier. And uh, so there was, uh, for a time in the 1990s, the party did actually want to split away. Uh, it's not ever sort of come close to achieving that, but it has uh, assured greater fiscal autonomy, uh, greater budget autonomy for the, for the northern regions, who therefore pay less of their tax take to, to Rome. And, and like, you said, it, like you said, it wasn't initially a hard right party. It had all different sorts of ideological currents, which makes sense in terms of them being a nationalist separatist force, because nationalist movements are, are typically cross-class alliances. Yeah. So, and, and indeed, it was very determined to present itself as as not uh, sort of uh, right wing. So, um, rather oddly, it, it actually staged a general election for Padania, a, a totally unofficial uh, parliament created by the party itself, in which um, lots of different uh, political colorations, but all representing Lager members, uh, stood, and people took this quite seriously. I mean, six million people. You know, like maybe about a third of the people who could have voted wow. did. Um, and what's interesting is one of the, the parties that stood <clears throat> was the so-called Padanian communists. And <laughs> their leading candidate was one uh, Matteo Salvini. Oh, God. Uh, Matteo Salvini was active in a, a social center, uh, like an autonomous uh, space in uh, Milan in the early 90s. Uh, I think by the time they had the election, his, uh, his sort of communism had certainly more than wanes. But uh, he he comes from uh, that that tradition um, when you know when he was a very young man. Um, what happened though was that the okay so the, the party arose you know in a time of very general sh- um, 
breaking down of the Italian political order. Uh, the Communist Party dissolved in 1991. It kind of in response to that, the a lot of the other um, divisions working away within the other old parties, the Socialists and Christian Democrats, exploded. So you had this massive corruption scandal uh, called Tangentopoli, like bribe, bribesville, and uh, that was that was the the situation in which the Lega made its breakthrough as a national party under its then leader Umberto Bossi. Um, it wasn't. As I say, it wasn't necessarily for the hard right. So, in, so for example, in 1994, it actually uh, there was actually a government, a, a sort of technocratic, uh, sort of get, let's get the public accounts in order kind of government that was supported by the centre left and the Lega Nord. Uh, so, in that sense, you know, it supported what was a very like mainstream neoliberal government. Uh, but for more of the last couple of decades, it, it was aligned with Silvio Berlusconi's uh, party, which was uh, Forza Italia. And it's normally made made up part of that uh, right wing block. And so, how did the party become ideologically so right wing in general and so anti migrant in particular? And does Matteo Savini's personal political trajectory just just map onto that general shift in the party's politics, or has he traveled a more personal journey? Well, I mean, I think certainly, you know, I, I say his, his his supposed left-wing affiliation was pretty brief and was very much when he was young. Uh, but nonetheless, his his leadership of the party has very greatly changed uh, its positioning. Um, what happened really was that, um, as I said, the Lega actually started out partly as an anti-corruption party and its leader, Umberto Bossi, throughout the 1990s and 2000s, and he actually ended up uh, himself in uh, a corruption scandal and indeed was put on trial and convicted of uh, fraudulent use of public funds and also treating the own sorry and treating the party's own finances as his own like personal bank account basically so he actually received a prison sentence and was forced out of the leadership in 2012. Um, at the same time there was a realignment of Italian politics because uh, there was a, um, a a government led by Mario Monti, a Goldman Sachs a technocrat advisor, uh, who led a, uh, a supposedly non-political government, but which was backed in Parliament by both the Democrats and then Silvio Berlusconi's party. And then it's the, like Michael uh, Bloomberg's dream government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except so, without uh, him as president, his his dream government involves him being in charge. But <laughs> <laughs> for sure, and there's this very strange thing. It, it actually resurfaced recently when there was talk of having a technocratic. Uh, government, if if the Lega five star uh, fell apart, it's that the president will elect a a, uh, a cabinet of uh, technocrats who haven't been elected by the population. But then they go, oh, don't worry, like we're not going to stand for election. You know, so it's like we're not going to stand next time. We're just going to like run the government and then leave it. But of course, that also creates the the possibility for the government to do whatever it likes, without ever facing any kind of popular judgment. Uh, so it's hard to see why that should be seen in positive terms. Um, but the Monty government was backed by both centre-left and centre-right. And then after the 2013 election, uh, those uh, parties actually went into direct coalition together in, uh, in, you know, in having their own ministers and so on. Uh, that fell apart because of Berlusconi's fraud conviction. Uh, and that was when he was actually forced to do community service, uh, when he was banned you know, in an old folks' home, when he was banned from standing for parliament and so on. 
um, so while the Lager had, after Bossi's scandal and resignation had collapsed, um, 2013, both the fact of the Grand Coalition and the uh, destruction of Berlusconi uh, created the space for the Lega to become a very different kind of party. Uh, and that's when Matteo Salvini uh, became the leader. Uh, and basically his, his uh, plan was to turn the Lega from being a regionalist party and small ally of the centre-right into the main party of the Italian right. And he did one explicitly modelled on the Front National in France. Um, so it would start to organise in every part of Italy. Uh, at first, uh, the party remained called the Northern League, Lega Nord, but then had candidates called uh, like uh, us with Salvini in the south, or like lists with the word uh, Salvini in, in the name. And um, we, we re really um, saw the fruits of that in the, the election in March, uh, because uh, Salvini was able to create a party that for the first time actually scored a higher percentage of the vote than Berlusconi's party. So Berlusconi has been the leader of the centre-right since uh, 1994. And now this is the first time that he's been overtaken. And uh, a big part of the way that, that, that Salvini was able to do that was by increasing the party in the South from literally not even standing and therefore scoring no votes to picking up a decisive, you know, five, six, seven percent in some of the southern regions in Rome, even uh, 11 percent. And, and the glue of the, the, the basically more middle class northern uh, support and the new vote in the south is uh, anti-migrant sentiment and uh, hostility to the to the refugees uh, bound up with a kind of uh, discontent at the, the, the previous government's bad handling of the refugee crisis. I find that absolutely fascinating and also, of course, terrifying that this party that wasn't just separatist, but also, as far as I've read, brazenly racist against oh, yeah. Southern oh, Italians, yeah. is able to hide that history, push that history to the side and mobilize Italians up and down the peninsula under the banner of a formerly anti-Southern Italian party because of anti on the basis of anti-migrant politics yeah i mean I, th I think one thing that's very interesting actually is when you connect it to the issue of um like if you think really like obviously italy is a country of emigration uh, obviously lots of italians moved to the united states but also other western european countries and you think like why would a country which has so much emigration and you know so much migrant experience nonetheless be so hostile to new arrivals and then you get this kind of thing, which is like much like actually with with Southern Italians in the United States in particular, this sort of struggle to be perceived as like proper whites. Um, yes. So like, so, so like, so we're therefore making them more racist and sort of a guard dog uh, against other migrant groups. And so what you have in in Italy uh, now is the Lega used to say, well, Southerners aren't really Italians; they're like half Arabs or Albanians or whatever. And now they're, you know, they, they've taken it one step further by including the Southern Italians, but against those other nationalities, against those groups. Um, of course, it's not just a, a sort of factor of uh, a matter of ideological positioning or people's sort of identity. It's also very bound up with, you know, their success is very bound up with the, the disaggregation of the traditional parties, uh, the economic crisis and such like. And I would uh, assert again that the Lega isn't 
the biggest party in the southern regions far from it it's just that it's been able to add on a sizable you know like a million votes across the south uh, which for a party of its size is a is a big breakthrough particularly considering it's a uh, you know in a system with proportional representation to make that kind of breakthrough is is amazing really that's a fascinating parallel that you draw between southern italians joining up with the league and anti-migrant politics in italy and the experience of southern italian americans in the U.S. And I'm, I'm doing an inter. I did an interview with Matthew Fry Jacobson, a historian mm. at Yale who wrote this book, uh, Roots Two, about the the white ethnic uh, revival in the U.S. And it's very much in part about how this, um, you know, a- after facing intense discrimination in the early 20th century, how how so-called white ethnics really carved out their own space within whiteness, very much in opposition to the the black civil rights agenda and, and also what was really caught my attention this week actually uh, uh, so the the lagos governor in uh, veneto which is like the northern region uh, to the north of venice he uh, so basically like salvini uh, said uh, on uh, on uh, last saturday uh, for the migrants the the party is over and uh, that same day 60 uh, migrants died off tunisia in a shipwreck and also the same day a, a Malian uh, migrant worker, uh, um, Sumaila Saka, was murdered in uh, Calabria. There's an article about it on uh, on Jacqueline by uh, Abu Bakr Sumara. And um, so after all of that happened, uh, the governor of Veneto gave this speech in a campaign rally in the, in the local elections there, where he, com- he compared the Italian migrant experience to the Africans arriving in Italy now. And he said this thing, which was like, um, you know, when your grandparents went off abroad, you know, they weren't filling up the jails. They were uh, doffing their caps and saying thank you to their bosses. This brings us to something that I think is really important to discuss, which is what might happen to migrants once this new government starts implementing policy. And if you could contextualize that by explaining a bit about the current situation with, with migrants in Italy, both concretely in terms of their current condition and also the politics that have been developing around them well before this government took office? I mean, I think there's a, uh, there's a, a well-justified sense of alarm at, the, at what the Lega and Five Star are talking about. Um, the, so the Five Star movement has some representatives, most notably Roberto Fico, who's the, the, the uh, chair of the uh, lower house of parliament, who, who have said kind of pro-migrant things, solidarity with with uh, people struggling to make it from North Africa and so on. Uh, and yet the new government's uh, contract is entirely determined by the Lagos agenda. So it specifies the deportation of 500,000 illegal immigrants. Uh, even before the election, uh, Luigi Di Maio, who's the five-star leader, had said that there should be a target of uh, no migrant boats arriving in Italy. Um, and it kind of typically of the way in which the Five Star is a very kind of two-faced movement, this is posed both as uh, like, well, we don't want any refugees or migrants here because we don't want to have to deal with them. And then this kind of fake uh, humanitarian point, which is like, well, we should be helping the migrants in Africa rather than them having to come here. Which which Trump also says about migrants from refugees from Syria. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a farcical argument because of course, the, norm, 
majority of the migrants actually do stay in the actually in the Syrian example you know most of the refugees are in uh, go to Lebanon uh, in uh, so uh, you know there's this mi uh, Malian migrant worker the other day who was killed and people say well you know why are all these Malians coming over here but it's like no let you know three percent of them are coming to Europe most of them are in uh, places like Niger um, so um, but yeah so I mean the the Lega has absolutely stamped its, you know, placed its stamp on, on the government's agenda on migration and the rhetoric is very harsh. So all this kind of the party's over, uh, with, you know, aiming to stop any arrivals and so on. Um, Which we should is, put out is, is creating an ongoing bloodbath in the Mediterranean. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been this, uh, this case the last couple of days about this, uh, uh, this ship called the, uh, the Aquarius, which, uh, Salvini, uh, uh, he sort of said um, it's not going to be allowed to land in Italy, and so the boat is, is stuck in the Mediterranean. Uh, the Spanish government's offered to take it, but yeah, you know, it, you know thousands of people die in, every year in, in crossing the Mediterranean. And in this specific case, I mean, they're not a, you know, it, it, their their situation is very desperate. So um, it's it's very worrying, and it's you know very worrying to see the kind of popular support for this kind of you know or the success of this kind of rhetoric. Uh, of course, Salvini as interior minister doesn't actually have any rights to declare the ports closed or such like, uh, and the five star have completely gone along with it. You know, the, the prime minister Conte uh, and uh, also uh, Danilo uh, Toninelli, who's uh, one of the leaders of the five star movement. You know, they uh, they have have gone along with with this. Uh, you know, it's basically a stunt by Salvini. You know, he posted a picture of himself on on Twitter, like with his arms crossed and the hashtag, like we're closing the ports. And now that the when the Spanish said, well, we'll take the boat, uh, this Aquarius I mentioned with 629 refugees, uh, um, I almost said Mussolini, uh, Salvini uh, declared. <laughs> um, because so I, I think part of the explanation of the success is, is of course, it's very much, you know, Italy has few settled migrant communities, very few people from ethnic minorities in public life, not a very strong history of uh, anti-racist movements. Um, and so like antipathy towards migrants is doubtless the, the structuring thing. Uh, but nonetheless, we can also point to things like, uh, you know, other reasons which help explain why the, the Lega has been so successful in uh, you know, making ground on this issue. Uh, one of which is uh, the scandal about the, so um, there's a thing called the Dublin Agreement, which basically means that um, when migrants arrive in a particular EU country, that country has to keep them there rather than just allow them to continue traveling through Europe. Uh, of course, the migrants arriving uh, in Italy, who mostly arrive from uh, either Tunisia or Libya, uh, you know, they don't want to come to Italy. Uh, Italy is known for its violent racism, uh, doesn't have a welfare state, doesn't have well-established migrant communities. Uh, but the EU makes Italy keep them there. Um, yeah, which I think it brings up an important point, which is that the response to the election from the EU and German government, the German government that runs much of the show in Europe, um, has been so scolding of, of Italy and scolding in such a way that threatened to, to scuttle the the pop the choice of Italian voters, however horrific that choice was. Mm. Um, but 
looking back in recent years, as you point out, European migration policy has has failed to resettle migrants. So they end up getting stuck in basically the front door countries to Europe. And then on the economic front, they've been it's northern Europe and the Troika that's been so that's played such a central role in imposing austerity on Italy. So to what degree do these two strands of policy coming from northern Europe, the, the, the austerity and the, the migrant policy that fails to, to resettle migrants outside of border countries, to what degree do those two things combined really reveal that, that northern Europe has a lot of responsibility for this new right-wing government being in power? I think it's certainly true that a lot of the rhetoric coming out of um, Berlin and European institutions, uh, and indeed a lot of the foreign press, totally plays into Salvini's hands, because exactly what he wants to portray is this battle between Italian democracy, Italians having their say, and then bad outside powers telling them what to do, or saying that Italians are stupid and such like. Um, And uh, so we've seen a, a, um, a lot of, you know, when, with the, um, when the, the, the government was uh, sort of briefly uh, stalled by Mattarella refusing the economy minister, Savona, uh, basically every single thing that any foreign press outlet said about it was immediately weaponized by uh, Salvini to show that uh, Europe doesn't believe in uh, democracy, that uh, Italians aren't allowed to choose for themselves. Um, However, I I think it's also important to to push back against some of the claims that he makes. I mean, even the economy minister thing is a little more complicated in the sense that, uh, you know, the Lega and Five Star didn't actually stand in the election on a pro-Ital exit platform, you know, in favour of leaving the euro. So, and, you know, Paolo Savano is just an old, you know, he's an economist, He, he doesn't have any sort of elected political role. So, so this, the Lega very much wanted to portray it as the voters' choices thwarted, but the voters hadn't chosen either him or the policy in any meaningful way. However, the fact of people like Merkel and someone speaking about the Italian government's composition allowed him to get away with that. Um, again, with the migrant thing, I mean, it's true that uh, the uh, European Union and Dublin agreement um, force uh, Italy to keep migrants on Italian soil. But it's not actually true that Italy has a, you know, like, for example, Italy has taken far fewer refugees than Germany itself. Uh, And a big part of the reason why the refugee crisis has become such a heated issue recently is that the, um, basically, Italy is paid to keep the migrants on its soil. And then there was this scandal in uh, 2014, which was basically uh, called Mafia Capitale, which was basically that the Rome city government was hiring contractors to run uh, the centres to keep migrants in them, like uh, so-called shelters, but they're more like detention centres. Uh, and basically the people they who got the contract to, to run these, these facilities were just mafiosi who were basically like stealing the money. So there's a kind of... Uh, internal and domestic Italian corruption and incompetence that, that you know, greatly aggravates the situation and also feeds a kind of general distrust for, for the Italian state itself 
um, so among the population and among the categories likely to vote for um, Five Star and Lager. I mean, I think what, what Salvini's been skillful in doing is, 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 you know, really the migrant issue is the, 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 firstly, the most emotive one, and also the one that has like no real risk for him politically, because the climate, the general climate is just so strongly hostile. Um, so he, he makes it an issue of Europe needs to listen to us, Europe needs to take responsibility for these migrants and so on. And that really allows him a series of kind of set piece clashes with Brussels and to pose as the defender of democracy. Uh, while uh, on the euro thing, uh, you know, he doesn't want to leave the euro. And I think that's uh, very unlikely to, to happen. And so what about European complicity on the economic front? Without doubt, like um, Italy has very um, deep structural economic problems. For example, things like uh, demography, you know, having extremely old average population, uh, very poor infrastructure, uh, and the crisis has been going on for almost 30 years in a sense. I mean, if you look at, say, since uh, 1992, which was also the, the year of the collapse of the old political parties, um, the end of what's called the First Republic. Basically, from that point onwards, uh, Italy has grown less than half as much as France and also has um, you know, sky high youth unemployment and so on. I mean, I think the specific problem that the so although there were doubtless very severe uh, problems before the euro was introduced uh, between 1999 and 2002, the real effect of the euro has been to prevent Italy from having any tools to uh, extricate itself from the crisis uh, because it has a 2.4 trillion euro public debt uh, which it has no way of like inflating away or cancelling uh, in the manner of, say, a country like Japan, which you might say has a lot of the, uh, who has similar kind of demographic problems and such like. Um, and also because of the EU um, uh, limits on budget deficits, it's not allowed to borrow and invest in infrastructure uh, as much as it would like. Uh, so I think it's kind of trapped in the crisis. And Italy is actually one of, uh, I think, only two countries in the Eurozone that hasn't actually yet recovered to 2008 uh, GDP levels. And this is a problem shared across Southern Europe, these basic institutional contradictions in the Eurozone. Part of the problem really is it's very hard to talk about reforming it because, you know, as I said, you could do stuff like cancelling the debt, which would have a real positive effect. But the much more fundamental problem is that uh, by its very nature, uh, because it has a fixed exchange rate for all uh, eurozone countries uh, by definition uh, the effect of the euro is basically to uh, make uh, german exports cheaper and the the german currency as it were uh, artificially cheap whereas for italy it's artificially expensive and its exports are are, are artificially expensive relative to wage levels um, so italian manufacturing uh, has actually fallen uh, I think uh, 30% uh, in the last 10 years, which is really dramatic. But then the problem is, is that the actual, I'd say, you know, if you look at opinion polling and so on, we find that the majority of younger Italians are in fact for uh, leaving the euro. Although kind of anecdotally, anecdotally, I'd say the majority sentiment is probably a bit like it's too difficult. It's, sorry, it's like the euro has been a disaster, but it would be too difficult for us to leave and people don't have the, the, the faith in like the state or uh, the, 
or a particular government like this one to actually uh, sort of successfully politically out of it. Uh, so what you have is a kind of uh, generalized like malaise and lack of faith. You know, when the euro was launched, it was launched amidst very great uh, optimism and a lot of big promises about the stability it would bring. That's all been disappointed. And yet it's very hard to think of any uh, alternative or way out. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Socialism 2018 Conference. If you like this podcast and want to connect with other radicals in real life, you should come this summer. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirin, Sarah Jaffe, Anand Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many more. The conference is packed with talks on everything from eco-socialism and climate change to black athletes in revolt to debates around topics like gun violence, resisting the police, socialists in elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about the movements of today, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And Socialism 2018 will feature leaders of the teachers' strikes that have swept through the so-called red states this spring. Teachers from West Virginia to Puerto Rico to Arizona will speak on two panels in Friday night's main plenary. Don't miss this opportunity to learn about the power of organized workers from rank-and-file leaders across the country. Socialism is co-sponsored by the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, ISO, Haymarket Books, Socialist Worker, and by Jacobin. And it will feature talks with Jacobin contributors on lessons from the current Teachers' Rebellion, the movements of 1968, Bernie Sanders, the future of the socialist left, and more. The conference is also a great place to learn the basics of Marxism. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. That's socialismconference.org. So speaking of malaise and lack of faith, we need to talk a bit about the Five Star Movement, which we <laughs> haven't gotten into very, very sure. deeply. Um, it, you write that it's become a sort of vehicle for Lega policies in the in this government because its own sort of anti-version of of anti-politics, um, I guess, leaves them pretty vulnerable to that. And and, and, and uh, this is perhaps, I mean, the, the most slippery political force on earth that I'm aware of. <laughs> it, it's by no means a left force, but but you write that it is, its success is very much an outcome of the left, the Italian left's collapse. It, explain what you mean by that, um, who the Five Star Movement is, and why the Italian left for for a long time, maybe not recently, but for a long time, one of the, the strongest in Europe, why it has collapsed. Starting with the question of the, the collapse of the Italian left, I mean, it has a lot to do, of course, with the fact that the, the biggest uh, left party by far was the Communist Party, uh, which, uh, although it in some ways distanced itself from the Soviet Union in the 1970s, nonetheless remained sort of bound up with, with the communist identity. Uh, and, you know, uh, in, it had many sort of internal sensibilities, some of which were more kind of linked to the 
the legacy of 1917, uh, the idea of ultimate revolution, even uh, the idea of a kind of big socialist change in society, uh, particularly among the base, and then currents in it which were more sort of social democratic. And uh, in the, the post-war decades, uh, the fact that the Communist Party wasn't a, really allowed or able to join the national government, even in coalition, uh, even in the so-called historic compromise of the 1970s uh, with the Christian Democrats, uh, it was never actually in government. Um, so what the party was a bit like was it had this kind of endless, uh, gradual electoral rise, uh, strength in kind of regional governments where it could carry out progressive policies, uh, for example, to the creation of something like welfare state in its own regions, free public transport in uh, in Emilia-Romagna, that kind of thing. Uh, control of the unions, a uh, very large uh, base of kind of cooperatives, uh, of which uh, I think seven or eight million Italians were members, both uh, workers and consumer cooperatives. Um, and it's all held together by this kind of promise that eventually it will succeed, eventually it will make its government. Um, but then basically when the Soviet Union uh, collapses, that's also the death knell of the communist identity of the party and the social democratic wing of it tried to create a Italian social democrat party such as had never existed uh, in the 1990s. Uh, and that party uh, was really from the outset very quickly gravitated towards the kind of Blairite uh, and Clinton sort of third way of social democracy. Um, and uh, ultimately ended up as what's now called the Democrat Party, uh, explicitly modelled on on the U.S. Uh, Democrat Party. Uh, really, the, through the 90s and 2000s, the glue of its different elements, you know, some of which came from the old left, some of which were Christian Democrats and liberals. What really held them together was anti-Berlusconiism. Uh, and opposition to Berlusconi also allowed it to draw in even parts of the radical left, most notably the party Rifondazione Comunista, uh, which had uh, not uh, which had not gone along with the idea of creating a, a democratic party and which wanted to keep the old communist party alive. Uh, and basically uh, this, uh, this uh, arrangement basically denied the left any distinct voice. Uh, so at the time of the um, 2000, so in the 2006-2008 government, um, the, uh, even the, the kind of communists, even the radical left of Rifondazione, uh, actually voted for the war in Afghanistan, as in to continue financing the Italian involvement in the war in order to prevent the government falling and thus allowing Berlusconi into power. Uh, when one of the senators uh, insisted on voting against uh, Rifondazione, against the war, Rifondazione actually expelled him. Um, wow. So you, you saw... So you saw Rifondazione, and also, you know, Rifondazione signed up to things like the European uh, Fiscal Stability Pact, which basically is the uh, the underpinning of, uh, sort of uh, neoliberal rules on borrowing in the in the uh, European Union, uh, also in the name of, of sort of keeping the centre-left in power, the so-called centre-left, this uh, Democratic Party, as it later became. Um, so the, the, it really failed to... Uh, main, maintain a sort of anti-establishment uh, left-wing force. It was constant, the threat of Berlusconi, uh, and, you know, uh, Berlusconi's own coalition obviously included um, sort of ex-fascist parties 
uh, and indeed also included the Lega uh, at an earlier stage of its development. Um, so, you know, the threat was real, uh, but the, the, the radical left was constantly drawn into these uh, coalitions uh, uniting the whole like neoliberal centre and centre-left and, and unable to, to forge a distinct force for itself. This sounds very familiar to the, to the U.S. <laughs> situation where so many establishment liberals would love nothing more than some grand anti-authoritarian alliance with people like Bill Kristol on the neocon right. Yeah, absolutely. It's the resistance. Uh, and, you know, um, at the you know, in the Berlusconi years, uh, the, the, the Democrats would often uh, criticize him from the right, from the perspective of, you know, we need uh, to be more serious about uh, the public accounts, about cuts, uh, you know, that he's a clown, basically all the stuff we hear about Trump. Um, and indeed, this actually even led in uh, 2011. What actually happened in, in 2011 was that the Berlusconi government um, was uh, not implementing the budget deficit cuts uh, required from uh, Brussels and the president of the Republic, together with uh, Mario Draghi of the European Central Bank, uh, more or less uh, conspired uh, in order to remove uh, Berlusconi from office in order to impose a, a cabinet of unelected technocrats. And this was very much the uh, with the with the support of the uh, the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, also, of course, in the um, you know, 2008 was the moment of the financial crisis, and this was precisely when the Five Star Movement got going. Uh, it first uh, yeah had a series of so-called meetups. Uh, meetups is a now forgotten uh, social media site, and uh, you had local groups. I never forgot. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, MySpace, but with less uh, interaction. Um, yeah, so um, so uh, so Beppe Grillo organized these so-called meetups, uh, and the idea is like all the parties are the same; uh, they're all corrupt, uh, you know. And we're going to create a movement that's not a political party, and that's what Five Star is. And it first started standing elections in two thousand and nine. Um, unlike, say, Rifondazione, the radical left party which was always in power together with the centre-left. Um, Grillo's movement from the outset was like, we're never going to go into, it, you know, it projected a much more anti-systemic aura. So it was like, um, our representatives aren't going to go on TV or do interviews. Uh, in fact, expelled uh, some of its MPs precisely because they went on TV uh, in, <laughs> in a now long forgotten phase of its development. Uh, you know, it's, uh, everything was going to be decided by online vote. Uh, and they weren't going to uh, enter into any force trading with other parties. Uh, so the party built, and it is a party, uh, a five-star movement built itself up precisely by having this kind of uh, image of differentness, of not playing by the rules of politics, indeed of not being staffed by politicians, uh, particularly in uh, 2011 to, uh, uh, well, actually between 2011 and this year, there were various forms of, of technical government or coalitions between centre-left and centre-right. So that really helped the movement both to uh, pose as something very different uh, and to um, to define itself against the political parties saying that they're all the same, but without actually defining a political line of its own. Um, so, you know, it claimed to be above left and right, it drew in a lot of, uh, particularly notably, uh, drew in a lot of former left-wing voters, 
Uh, there was a poll after the, the election on 4th of March showing that more people who voted communist in 1987, uh, more, more of them voted for the five-star movement this time than voted for the uh, center-left, uh, the Democrats. That's sobering. So I'd say the, the movement's strongest base of support, uh, although far from exclusive, you know, it claims to be sort of uh, not a particular class or not left or right. But the reason why I say it's replaced the left is its strongest support is among unorganized parts of social groups that you would otherwise expect to vote for the left. Uh, so for example, so un among unemployed people, it has 50% of the vote. Uh, among under 44s, it has about 45% of the vote, uh, particularly in, also in, in the southern and therefore poorer parts of Italy, uh, in many it scores well over 40% of the vote. Um, so it, it, it represents a, uh, a kind of elements of the population which are very hit by the crisis, and as I say, not just the 2008 crisis, but which have over the last 30 years, you know, lost uh, the ability to get a job. Um, you know, so in Italy, there's over 35% youth unemployment. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of people feel that the reason they can't get a job is because of patronage, is because the old parties and their cliques control everything, including in the public sector, in fact, uh, which also leads the fighter movement to tend to be quite hostile to trade unions, uh, because in its, it, its essential, if it had a, a political message more, uh, or sorry, if I were to distill it from its uh, ideology, uh, which it doesn't sort of explicitly say, basically its idea is a bit like uh, the individual who can't get a job and who is faced with, with patronage and with institutions that don't work, uh, it is going to take measures so that that individual can make a career for themselves. And so, uh, so, and so they have this intense focus on on corruption, which, as you noted earlier, so did the Northern League. And I think that both part that both parties have have this focus and history of anti-corruption tells us a lot about how anti-corruption politics often operate more generally. Looking at Brazil, for mm. example. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because basically it postulates this kind of imaginary situation where. Uh, um, it's like the, the state is uh, untrustworthy, so we don't want to call for big public investment projects because everyone knows that they won't work. Uh, so, but the, so the way to make it possible for people to find work and, and, to, and to make politics serve the population is to kind of cleanse the state of, of, of corrupt individuals. Uh, as I mentioned in the article I mentioned earlier, uh, in the Lagos case, it's amusing because, in fact, the the uh, the um, the leader Umberto Bossi, who um, who led the party on this like anti-corruption ticket and, and complained against thieving Rome and so on, uh, himself turned out to have embezzled both party funds and state uh, funds. Uh, and also, there's actually a liberal party called Italy of Values, uh, led by Antonio Di Pietro, which was part of the left uh, centre-left coalitions in the 2000s. Uh, Di Pietro was the lead prosecutor in the uh, Tribesville trials of the early 1990s. Uh, and uh, it was uh, with some uh, joy that I uh, received the news when basically Di Pietro was revealed to own uh, 56 houses. Wow. Uh, and, <laughs> and and uh, was more renting than, That's them more than John McCain. Uh, not a hero for me. 
Um, uh, yeah, real, real, real heroes by by fifty something houses. Yeah, and also the nature of his defense was quite suspicious because he kind of said, um, "Well, it's, you're counting fifty six houses, but actually some of them are just like garages, or like it's counting the number of buildings rather than the number of properties. So the real number is only like you know forty. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, on the five star movement, it, it, um, another thing that I want to underline in terms of their their anti-political posture you write that they in the past have refused to take enforced kind of a non-position on issues like gay marriage and abortion yeah i mean that's what's really uh interesting about what's happening now because um in the past uh they have always refused to take positions on so-called uh divisive social issues because they say uh the democrats are using this kind of progressive social policy as a distraction from the real issues of unemployment or of corruption or of whatever. So uh, although the party is meant to be organized on the basis of online direct democracy, because it's so uh, vacuous, it always has to avoid making a choice on anything that might divide its base, um, which worked a lot more easily before it started to enter local government and then to become a serious contender for national government. Yeah. When you govern, you actually have to have positions on everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, Turns yeah, out. And, and they always have this thing of kind of keeping the decisions at arm's length. I mean, even now. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I said, they have this policy of like no coalitions. And in, uh, I think it was in December, Luigi Di Maio said in an interview with uh, La Stampa that he might consider a coalition with either the Lega or uh, Libre Uguali, which is a small uh, centre-left party. And then Beppe Grillo, the movement's founder, uh, went ballistic and forced Di Maio to stand with him and, like, in public sign a contract saying no coalitions. Uh, because, of course, the problem is, is everyone's wondering, is this movement left or right wing? And then, of course, when you when it does align with another party, then you you see its true colours and who it really stands for. Uh, and now, of course, although anyone would would of course say that this is a coalition government between the Five Star and Lega, uh, but the Five Star members insist on saying that it's not, and that it's just a government contract with a limited program of reforms, and that the parties remain like radically different and so on, and they'd never stand together in elections. Uh, but of course, what we can see is that the Lega is totally imposing its agenda on on Five Star. Um, so, as a, as a further example of the, the the kind of slipperiness, I mentioned earlier this uh, Roberto Fico, who is the uh, the the chair of the lower house of parliament, and uh, he paid a visit. So, when the the Malian trade unionist Sumaila Saka was murdered, uh, Roberto Fico visited the the uh, the tendopoli, like the city of tents and shacks where the, where this worker had lived, and he met with some of the fellow migrant workers there, uh, and he expressed his solidarity with them, his uh, sorrow at the at the murder of uh, Sumaila Sako and so on. And some journalists asked him how he could feel all of these sentiments himself, and yet nonetheless be in a government with the Lega, <laughs> and he said, uh, "No, you're wrong. I'm not in the government. I'm just the." chair of the lower house, uh, which is technically true. I mean, he doesn't have a ministerial role in the government. He just has a institutional role, but which nonetheless owes to the fact that his party is his, in government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
so it, it's a, a, a nonsense. But but actually, when you uh, if you like, I try engage in uh, online combat with the five star people. They really believe this stuff, and they're very diehard in in insisting on it. Um, so I, I think actually a, a real problem is that it's kind of like I think there was a because as I say, a lot of old uh, sort of former communist voters, former left wing voters, working class voters. Uh, sorry, just to illustrate that point. Uh, uh, among blue collar workers, the Five Star Movement got 40% of the vote, uh, 4 0, uh, whereas the Democrats got 13, uh, wow. 1 3. Um, so, you know, they have destroyed the left. Uh, so, so you have this uh, you have this kind of optimism, which is like, well, you know, the Five Star Movement pretended not to be, uh, pretended not to be right wing, but now it's in coalition with the Lega, so it will be kind of exposed and then. Uh, you know, and then the voters will come back to the left. But what that doesn't really take account of is is the fact that if the left isn't organised, there aren't visible struggles. Um, people don't feel strength in their workplaces and so on. Then they don't really exist as a class in a kind of political sense. And in fact, if anything, the polling movement we've seen over the last couple of months since the election is actually a five star mo- five star movement voters actually migrating to the Lager. So they're actually like, building kind of like a political ideological bridge through their purported anti-politics to the far right from four yeah, former absolutely. left-wing voters. A, a, a key part of this that we've that we've touched on just you know as an aside a few times it, of this purported deeply democratic anti-politics that that Five Star practices is this is this internet obsession and putting. They put the accord with the Liga to an internet plebiscite, which has all the appearance and none of the substance uh, of democracy. It, explain this political style and what it reveals. So um, what's interesting, there's a, a very good book uh, called, uh, well, it's in Italian, but it's called The Experiment by uh, Jacopo Jacoboni, who I uh, interviewed for Jacobinson before the election, uh, where he talks about this guy, Gian Roberto Casaleggio, who was the founding guru of um, the uh, the Five Star Movement? Uh, he was like Beppe Grillo's like intellectual sidekick. In the 1990s, uh, Casaleggio, the movement's guru, uh, he took an interest in neuro linguistic programming, uh, which is like a, a kind of pseudoscience. Uh, but some of the uh, he's actually organised uh, before he died a couple of years ago. He actually organised kind of retreats. For the Five Star Movement's MPs, where they would receive uh, talks on neuro-linguistic programming uh, and also on hypnosis, uh, so like some really cultish Cult, yeah. and, and strange, uh, strange practices. Uh, but one of the things he he talks about in his in his writings in the nineties is about the the emerging world of of uh, you know online discussion, uh, Usenet forums, and that kind of thing. And basically, he he explicitly talks about studying how to manipulate online discussion. Uh, so like he he talks about stuff like um, what you should do is set up um, uh, a sock sock puppet accounts. And you'll have one guy who ventures an opinion uh, which you disagree with, and then you have two responses to it which are each much stronger than the original argument, uh, but by your own sock puppet accounts. And then you're bound to then see the discussion follows the way you want. 
Um, and uh, so in Five Star, he was very into, uh, he actually put some of this stuff into practice on their so-called uh, Rousseau uh, platform, which is the online platform of the, uh, of the Five Star movements. Uh, one of the strange aspects of this is it's actually like a, a business. So it's like the private property of Casaleggio and now his son. Um, and uh, Five Star officials were made to sign contracts in the early years when they were, weren't allowed to go on TV. They were made to sign contracts that they'd only release their public statements via Casaleggio-owned platforms, uh, which would also allow him to collect the uh, Google AdSense revenue. God. <laughs> so it is really uh, monstrous. But but, um, but it's kind of ge- it's kind of genius though because you have this I mean it's genius in a lot of ways but this idea that you put all of these things to internet plebiscites gives this sense of of the people having direct access to the political decisions made by elected officials when in fact it's premised on the the most undemocratic vision of democracy possible which is these atomized individuals sitting on their phones or at at their home computers um, making, you know, just sort of like ratifying predetermined um, referenda yeah, questions. Absolutely. So it's like if you ask, uh, yes, so, so first it's the referendum form means that the question's already decided in advance. Uh, and also it's like kind of like the five star, a five-star movement activist would tell you we decided our program collectively, not like the other parties. Whereas, in fact, what happened was they're proposed like 10 platform points and then they get to vote which will be prioritized. Uh, not that it makes a great deal of difference anyway, because, of course, the I mean, during the, the coalition negotiations between, uh, you know, so DeMaio, the leader of the Five Star Movement, he made coalition negotiations with the Democrats, which is the party the uh, Five Star purports to hate most and then with the Lega. And, you know, the members have no say over it whatsoever. It it would be farcical to suggest they did. Um, In January 2017, the the, the Five Star Movement, which currently sits in the the most Eurosceptic block in the European Parliament, so it's with the same group as, like, Nigel Farage. So basically, Beppe Grillo decided that he wanted to try and join uh, ALDE, which is, like, the the most liberal and pro-European one. So it has people like the English Liberal Democrats, uh, Guy Verhofstadt, who's a uh, Belgian, uh, you know, Euro, totally like a Euro-federalist. And then the, uh, the Five Star Movement voters voted in their online opinion poll. Uh, as I say, it's like, you know, they don't have any like meetings or like debates or anything. It's like Grillo puts out the question, then they vote. And they voted by 78.5% to make this complete political flip. So having been in an apparently very uh, right-wing Eurosceptic group, they voted by almost uh, four in five to join the most liberal and federalist one. And then Alde said, like, well, of course you can't join. You disagree with us on everything. <laughs> so then the decision was just, like, ignored. And Beppe Grillo phoned up Nigel Farage to say, oh, sorry, it was all a big misunderstanding. Uh, and in this, uh, in this uh, election... Uh, so, so when the when the De Maio made the government contract with the Lega, and he put it, you know, it had been going on for like twelve weeks, and then he says like, okay, here's this contract, you have like eight hours to vote, with like no discussion or debate or any kind of public 
even like public debate between the, the movements, like well-known public figures, you have eight hours to vote, should we go for this deal? And the result was a 94% yes vote on a 40% turnout, which for the movement by some is actually quite high turnout. So, you know, just like a really farcical and meaningless vote because the, the members just don't have any say. Uh, and yet, as you as I say, and you say yourself, it's very clever because it gives all of the appearance of removing the, uh, well, it gives the appearance of removing all of the uh, barriers between the private individual and then political life. What it actually does is it destroys all of the intermediate institutions, the local branches, the elected officials, the media, all that kind of thing that would actually allow an ordinary person to have an influence over national political life. That's very well put. Um, one bizarre thing about that is that the five star movement had maybe not anymore, I hope, but had some admirers on the American left and the left elsewhere. What what was that about? <laughs> well, I mean, I, okay, so I think um, there's there's some reasons. I mean, you know, obviously uh, the the five star movement rose from being, you know, nothing. You know, it had one big public figure, Beppe Grillo, who was a comedian, and with not uh, or apparently without the deployment of a great deal of resources. It rose from being nothing to a party which, four years after forming, got 25% of the vote in the national election and in its uh, in eight years into its existence, got uh, 32% in the national election. So doubtless anyone in a small left-wing party will look, uh, will look hopefully to this experience and think they could do the same. Uh, also, of course, um, in a lot of mainstream media, do portray it as left-wing. Uh, so, for example, in the uh, while the, the talks were taking place uh, a couple of weeks ago, I watched a video on BBC uh, Newsnight, which is a, um, the, the, the most uh, prestigious BBC current affairs program, uh, which described the five-star Lega deal as like if momentum from the British Labour Party joined up with Nigel Farage. And it oh, referred yeah. to five-star as uh, alt-left and indeed extreme left. Um, and, so, and so you know, much of this then seems to stem from this generally, this confusion seems to stem from this generally confused debate about populism, which is just used by sort of establishment figures as a as a derogatory term for right and left movements that that they don't like. That doesn't really, that obscures a lot more than it clarifies. And so we end up with yeah. like no no useful analysis of five star from mainstream publications. Like the first time I read about five star in the New York times, I was like, I don't get it. This article did not explain this movement to me mm. in anything <laughs> close to a satisfactory manner. I, I think actually, um, although in a way I'm just like a puffing up my own analysis, but I, but I think it's like, it's actually a lot more interesting to look at it, not in terms of populism and to look at it precisely in terms of like individualism. As in, it reflects the consciousness of the person who doesn't believe in state action and who doesn't feel any value in collective action and uh, doesn't feel any sense of like solidarity or anything. Let me quote from you. You write, while it purports to stand for an apolitical common sense, 
it in fact expresses the particular common sense of an era in which atomized, crisis-hit, crisis-hit individuals distrust public institutions and do not see collective action as a viable solution to their problems. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have put it better myself. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, so, so I think like also, I mean, if you think of it, okay, so like uh, there was a, a piece in the New Left Review in which, uh, you know, which, compa- which effectively sort of uh, drew a certain comparison between it and, and parties like Podemos uh, and I think perhaps also France Insoumise, uh, which, you know, certainly in French press, it's often bracketed with, with, with that party. Um, but actually, if you if you read Five Star Movement stuff, they never talk about uh, the Italian people uh, or still less class. They talk about citizens. You know, they're talking to individuals, and they don't they don't have any kind of like rallying progressive project. Uh, they're pretty thin on policy detail uh, at all. Um, but I think you know I think it, it's it's easy to um, you know, if you are a liberal centrist and you want to portray a uh, kind of horseshoe theory about the meeting of extremes and you want to discredit the left in your own country, then it makes sense to call the Five Star Movement a left populist movement. But from basically any other perspective, it makes no sense because it, it, it uh, isn't left wing. <laughs> My last question is just a, a general one, which is where you see Italian politics heading from here. And of particular interest to my listeners, is there any short or medium term hope for the Italian left? I think the, the, the current situation is, is doubtless a very negative one, because what we've seen indeed since the election is a radicalization to the advantage of the Lega. Uh, in, on March the 4th, the Lega rose from 4% last time to 17%. Now in the national polls, it's scoring uh, as high as 27%, uh, close to becoming the biggest single party. Uh, and in regional contests uh, since the election, it's made huge breakthroughs in regions that have never before organized. Um, on the migrant issue in particular, and also on the euro, uh, he's a, he seems to be able to do all of the running. The centrist liberal parties really have little to say. And as I say, we're also seeing a movement of five-star voters towards the Lega as if their own movement were just a kind of gateway drug towards the real thing. Uh, nonetheless, I think that there are definite fractures within the government which won't just be able to be um, sort of overwritten or and, and nor will Savini necessarily have his way. Uh, one of the most reactionary policies proposed by the government is a flat tax uh, so therefore, as in making everyone pay the same tax rate, uh, this already exists for some uh, self-employed workers, uh, but the plan is to generalize it to all Italians, uh, possibly including having two rates, but still like relatively close to each other and also very low. Uh, this is projected to cause a 100 billion euro uh, deficit in the public funds. And also it would be enormously to the advantage of the richest Italians at the expense of uh, poorer and indeed southern ones, uh, the southern regions where the five star is strongest. Um, so, for example, in uh, um, uh, by by the, the protections of, of the Lega's initial policy, um, a family on 300,000 euros a year 
would save almost 70,000 euros in taxes, whereas a family on 30,000 euros would save literally nothing uh, and would also see, of course, the effects of depriving the state itself of money in terms of public services being cut back and, so, and uh, infrastructure investment, uh, jobs in the public sector and so on. So I think that pretends a very definite clash between the parties because I, I just really don't see how they're going to be able to implement that without having a, an obvious conflict over redistribution and who this government really serves. Um, there aren't that many positive signs on the left. There's a centre-left party called Libri e Uguali, uh, free and equal, uh, but really it's more kind of part of the old centre-left establishment that's now broken away, uh, having seen the kind of Democrats go too far to the right. Uh, and um, I don't really see that they have any kind of dynamism uh, or really links to to real social movements, uh, even though the largest, the leader of the largest union confederation, uh, Susanna Camusso of the uh, CGIL, uh, does support that party. I really don't see that going anywhere. Then there's a, a smaller radical left party called Portero Popola. We ran a couple of articles about them for Jacobin. Uh, that has its strongest base of support in an extremely impressive social centre in Naples called Yeso Pazzo and is definitely a sort of younger party and is trying to do something a bit more like a left populist party of a type with uh, you know, something like Podemos or France and Simis. Uh, but doubtless is a very uh, early stage of organization, uh, only got 1.1% of the general election. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and I'd say also the, uh, also, you know, to be fair, I mean, I think a lot, it got going pretty soon before the election and the five-star movement had already hegemonized a lot of what that, the, the kind of voters who that party might hope to win over. Um, there are some notable social struggles, particularly uh, the feminist movement uh, against gender violence, uh, non una di meno, uh, and in certain sectors, particularly logistics and among uh, migrant workers in particular, actually, uh, we can see you know, strike movements uh, which are able to have some sort of echo at the level of national politics. Um, but really, I mean, I, I, I don't see any clear uh, issue or a cause or group of workers which could become a kind of rallying point for the reconstitution of the left. I mean, as we were saying earlier, this is a country that used to have a communist party with two million members, uh, which secured as high as 34% of the vote. And now it's uh, probably the country in Western Europe with the very weakest left. Uh, in many ways, it looks a lot like countries uh, you know, it's a country that used to have a big communist party, not a governing one, and where now the left barely exists. And in a sense, it's actually quite similar to countries like uh, Poland or Slovakia or Hungary, where the, the, the political battle just doesn't include any kind of left wing or egalitarian or internationalist voice at all. So you just have more or less authoritarian and social forms of neoliberalism. So I think currently the, the situation looks extremely bad uh, and there aren't a lot of signs for hope. Uh, then again, uh, I, for the uh, reasons for optimism, your re uh, listeners may, may be hoping for, 
I can offer any rather generic ones based on such things as uh, in Britain, we didn't see Jeremy Corbyn coming. In the United States, no one saw Bernie Sanders coming. Uh, we knew that the discontent was there, but we hadn't seen it take any sort of progressive uh, or, or really organized and explicit form. We'd only seen sporadic movements. And, and that this government won't, will no doubt fail to solve the contradictions that are already exploding in Italian politics and will continue to create new contradictions. And in those contradictions, you know, there will be opportunities both for good and for ill. But I, it seems like the only hope here is this generic but still very substantive <laughs> hope that Italian politics has been impossible to predict and it will remain so. Yeah, I mean, if, if I wanted something concrete to hang the chance of hope for, I think this flat tax thing really is it. Because uh, while the flat tax does exist in some other countries, it was mainly kind of an, an instrument of creating a, a bourgeoisie and of, uh, of wealth division in post-communist countries, uh, whereas I think applying somewhere like Italy would just have such grave and disastrous effects on the, uh, on the poor uh, and on public services that uh, it wouldn't really be, uh, I think it would be very difficult for it to succeed. Of course, what Lega hopes for is a war among the poor, that even as Italians get poorer and continue to be unemployed and hopeless, that they will turn their anger on migrants. And I think we should uh, salute the work of, of those. Uh, so I, I mentioned earlier a, uh, Abu Bakr, uh, who wrote an article, uh, somewhere, who wrote an article for um, Jacobin about the, the killing of, uh, of the Malian migrant worker last week. And he's in the USB union which is a, a, it's a base union, a grassroots union controlled by its members. Uh, and despite, you know, it might sound like because it's radical, it's small. I think it actually has about four or 500,000 members. And, and they're, they're working with, with workers who are very difficult to organize, you know, southern farm laborers uh, among the poorest workers in Italy, earning two, two euros, 15 an hour maybe. And they're working to organize across the divide between migrants and Italian-born workers. Um, so, you know, in he's been uh, on the TV studios in Italy uh, the last few days uh, and uh, made something of a splash. Uh, so I think that kind of organizing work is, is really fantastic and, uh, and offers uh, some reason for, for something more than the, the kind of division and uh, fighting among workers, uh, which the Lega bases its strength on. Well, David Broder, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for having me on. David Broder is a historian of French and Italian communism and frequent contributor to Jacobin. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the more rotten the present representative system turns out and is acknowledged to be, the more desirable is it that it should be altered neither rashly nor radically. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. So does you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is really great. 
And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing running. Even a few bucks is a big help. Out.